he just looked at me and he said, what, so what's, what are you for us? Well, he says, he goes, just listen for a minute. He says, you're bankrupt. I said, well, no, I, I got a little cash in the bank. He says, you're bankrupt. I wasn't, it wasn't hitting me. And he says, what do you mean? He says, you don't have anybody. Mm. You, had a, you had a family. You had nobody. You're bankrupt. Friends, welcome back to the Become Good Soil podcast. It's Morgan, and I am really, really happy to dive into the second part in a two-part series where I'm sitting with my dear friend, brother, mentor, and guide from many years, Tommy Caldwell. And if you haven't listened to the episode before this, you'll absolutely want to listen to that first because we're walking through the narrative arc of his masculine story, a story of initiation, a story of loss and restoration. And as I turn into this part two, I'm just struck by the words of Jaber Crow. If you remember, there was an earlier podcast last year titled, I Am Being Led. And I featured the work of Wendell Berry in his book, Jaber Crow, where he talks about unbroken lines. In his 70s, he's looking back over his life where he says that at that time, he felt adrift and he felt like he was wandering in the dark woods of air. But now in his 70s, it looks as though he was following a path laid out for him, unbroken, maybe even as straight as possible from one end to another. He goes on to describe this feeling which never leaves him anymore. And he says it this way, that I have been led. I think that's why confession, I get a man crush on older men. Tom is in his eighth decade of life and he has relentlessly pursued the heart of God and responded to this divine affection that has found him at the pit of despair, moment after moment, that has restored him, recovered a path and process of initiation, and has allowed Tom to become a sort of oak of righteousness where many have leaned into his life for strength and care and to see the face of God. In part one, we talked a lot about childhood and development. Tom used this phrase that the soul in those earliest years was intended to have the experience of maximum comfort and minimal uncertainty. Isn't it fascinating that secure attachment is rooted in emotional well-being of a long-standing, consistent emotional attachment with a caregiver? that communicates a message, you are loved, you are safe, you are provided for. It's an atmosphere of maximum comfort and minimal uncertainty. And that is the basis as we begin to mature and walk through challenges and learn how to embrace failure as a means of maturity and initiation from that base of comfort and security, we can actually take risk. We can actually learn how to move into uncertainty, how we can move out of comfort, where we are sacrificing, where we are challenging ourselves to go without, because it's built on this foundation of home, 
of our being knows we are safe, we are loved, and we have more than enough. And so in episode one, we unpacked a lot of that through the boyhood stages into cowboy and into warrior. In this episode two, we're going to be turning more into adulthood. And particularly in this place where Tom now meets the woman and dives into romance and to the earliest stages of finding himself in an adult world, but still being mixed because parts of him were still unfinished and uninitiated. So let's turn back to an intimate conversation with my friend and hero, Tommy Caldwell. Tom, you're so brave to offer just your heart to this like-hearted community, younger men following your path and recovering all that God meant when he meant us. In the earlier story, we talked about kind of the dissolving of your family and the lack of your mom to be able to provide emotional well-being and your lack of your dad simply to be able to engage uh, from the level of the soul. And so let's pick up uh, where we were with sort of the disintegration, the divorce, and then the shift uh, when you went with your dad. After my dad moved out, I, I ended up moving out with him. He, he had a apartment, a little apartment above his machine shop. So we lived there. It was pretty dingy and ate a lot of canned food and stuff. And uh, But that's when I decided to jump back into school. And there was a, there was a school down, to, actually where he was training, uh, converted it to a, a high school uh, for adults. And I was pretty much there. I mean, if you're over 18, you could go. So I started going back to school at night and, and try to pick up my equivalent of grade 12, which I did, which allowed me to, uh, to make my next move. The heart is drawn towards the woman, right? There's something that she makes you come alive. That's why, like, even like you said, part of that sexual encounter that you could tell evil really wanted to destroy yeah. sexual um, integrity, sexual wholeness. Um, but but then there is there is a part of you that's made to love a woman. Take me into that season of your life and meeting Patricia. Well, okay, so I'm uh, so I got, became friends with her brothers. I got gotten introduced to her, and I thought, wow, she's pretty. But I, Morgan, I had not dated a girl. And now I'm like, I'm like, I'm now in 19, going on 20. And I had not had a girlfriend. Like there were, there were a mystery. I mean, I had, a, I, I had a crush on a little girl when I was going to the ice skating rink, we had these outdoor rinks then. And I had a, I had to see her and I just, wow, she's just the most beautiful. It was another girl, but so I really didn't, but I, during this time I also met somebody else through another friend. So I kind of started dating her a little bit, but I was and she was interested in me. Her name was Barbara. Um, and yet she wanted, she wanted to get close. And I, I what happened is I panicked. Mm -hmm. I thought, yeah, I, I can't do this. I said, you know, I, 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 I gotta, I gotta finish my, I made some excuse up. I gotta finish my school or something like that. And so I broke up and it was, you know, it wasn't long after that I was uh, started to get to know Patricia in the narrative arc of your masculine initiation, I just hear the theme again and again from the abandonment is fear of intimacy and just terror of what happens if I allow her to be close to me. And what's so fascinating is in this sort of 
part of the masculine soul we so often disassociate. And it starts with phrases like part of me. So you know that thing in us that says part of me wants to go out to dinner with that couple and part of me doesn't. Part of me wants to work out and part of me doesn't. Part of me wants to um, eat that third slice of pizza and part of me knows I shouldn't. That, that disassociation from parts of us are actually very intriguing clues to a treasure hunt. And in that, that's what's often formed is it's called an idealized image. It's teaching we learned years ago from John Smeltzer, but often in our breaking off parts of us that are unfinished, that are uninitiated, that are stuck in trauma, we reject those parts because they seem to interfere with our adult life. And in that process, we create a sort of persona. This idealized image is a projection of a sort of caricature of who we could be or should be or want to be or wish we could be. But in truth, we find ourselves lacking. We find ourselves with a sort of seemingly insufficient posture as a man. Did any of that sort of um, reality surface for you? I had started as a young boy to exaggerate because I felt so insecure that I didn't have any value. So I would, I would embellish a story, which was lying. So I developed propensity to lie because I thought you never would accept me if I told you the truth anyway. Mm. So I had to embellish the story or do something different. But it, um, so we started dating. And then I remember some guys, it wasn't even for me. I think because I looked a little older at that time, I remember buying a case of beer, I think, for some guys uh, who liked me for what I could do. And she said, I saw you. She says, you you were in the beer store. You bought beer. I goes, no, I didn't. She says, yes, you did. I saw you. So that was like, oh, wow. So she said, okay, you know, we got to, I'm not, we got to break this off. I can't be with you. And so, uh, okay. And I was double feelings about, I was, I was horrified. And I was broken by it, but also a sense of relief in a bit. But, but, the, but the feelings of wanting to be with somebody and the, the desire to be with a woman and somebody who would see me for who I am, could love me, was greater. And so I moved him back in closer. And eventually, uh, we navigated some really difficult times off and on, off and on. Um, uh, and and uh, she would tell you that she, you know, she grew up in a pretty big family and far from perfect. But they what was one of the things that attracted me to her is because they would have problems, but they'd work them out. Mm-hmm. They work them out, and they prayed every night together. They were uh, Catholic, and they would go to mass, and then and they were before the evening, and would, they would all kneel down and pray together. And I thought, whoa! Now I hadn't ever been in a church. I hadn't had any introduction to to uh, the Lord at all. But she, here it was, and I thought, okay, it had my attention, but I, I, it didn't, it didn't really connect with me at the time. Yes. But, it, but it, was, it was sort of like, wow, this is pretty cool. Like I never seen a family like this. Anyway, we eventually did get married. It was pretty good. I was scared. I didn't tell anybody, but I was very terrified. We got married and, but it seemed beautiful. In about in that first year I also had applied for the, uh, for the police department. What was it that drew you to the police department? 
It's a good question. It was, I wanted to make a difference. There's a lot of trouble in our world and I wanted to make a difference. And I'm glad you raised that because the, I didn't like traffic patrol at all. I didn't mind the criminal investigations and all those things or patrolling property and trying to catch, you know, break and enter guys and all that. The thing that was that made the most impression on me was I was actually, I was actually promoted far quicker than anybody I knew. And I got, a, I think I mentioned, I got a job, actually got a job in the courthouse and used to have to drive the paddy wagon, which in the morning we'd have to pick up prisoners at the county jail and bring them down to the courthouse. And, um, on the way on the way back to the detachment that night, I got a call. Said anybody near the? Is anybody near the four one tenth concession? I said I'm only a quarter mile away. And they said they gave me the description. Go to this this barn, and there was a man who was threatening to kill himself in the barn. And Morgan, I no hesitation. I just went, and I remember going to the barn door, and there was a guy sitting there with a shotgun under his chin. Don't come here, I'll blow my head off. I says all that, but that would be horrible. Don't do that. Why? You know, he's, and I started engaging him and I just kept talking. And, and uh, finally, I said, Yeah, if I let you come here, you're going to shoot me. He goes, No, no, I took my gun butt off. I'm not going to shoot you. I just I didn't even want to talk. And I eventually got in there and started talking to him, getting a bit of a story. He's just a lonely man. His wife had mm-hmm. died a few years before. He, nobody, nobody was taking any attention to him. And I, just a lonely man. And I was able to walk him out of there. Hmm. And it, wow. So that was going to be another point in my life where God was saying, I made you for this time. You understand pain. I made you for this. You understand loneliness. Hmm. See, I remember I said, nothing gets wasted. Exactly. And Tom, I, I want to pause and just not rush through this, but the emotion in your heart as that comes out, I just love the fierce heart of the father who is never giving up. You see actually that true warrior in your heart, the one who was a boxer and actually was really skilled at it. And also you see that piece of you, like you said, you are a better lover than a fighter. There's something in your heart, Tom, that's made to shepherd the souls of people. You you are gifted in pastoral care. You're gifted in coming to the center of other people's pain. You are gifted with a capacity to empathize where people feel known and seen and loved. And in that moment in the police force, it all comes together to literally save the life of another. It's stunning. What I notice in the story of masculine initiation is there are these breakthrough moments like that, where we just have total clarity. Like, this is where I come alive and this is what I want to bring to the world. And then we go do it. But the problem is we've not become the kind of man who can carry the mantle. There are uninitiated parts of us where part of us is ready to go, but part of us is not. And that is a primary place that the enemy can wage a war to take us out. And so I want to explore your story in this place and ask the question, as you move toward desire, as you began to respond to what God put in your heart of who you are and what you're meant to bring, what was the enemy's tactic to try to take you out right in this place of your joy and your longing? I don't want to cop out and trying to make excuses, but I was so I was very naive. And here was these other officers and then, and well, yeah, well, after work, we always go out for a beer. 
And I really hadn't, I, even when I was hanging with the guys, I, guess, I didn't drink much at all, hardly at all. Not back then. So my, uh, just thinking, oh, okay, chance to be with the guys. And actually guys invited me out. So I'd go for beers. And that wasn't all of them, just some of them. Eh? And of course, uh, the ones that were, now I know they, they were troubled. They were having trouble in their marriages and stuff like that. But it, uh, but it, it put a strain for sure. And then, um, and then I got into a situation where I was in, I got into the courthouse and, and, uh, and I was, when I was in the courthouse, I got to know a lot of lawyers and the judges and crown attorneys, assistant crown attorneys and that. And there was a group of them that kind of hung out together. And I started getting invited to go to one of the local places downtown. There was a couple sort of nightclubs, places that there was sort of place where you could have restaurants and they had also entertainment and stuff, dancing and that. I got invited. I thought, wow, I'm getting invited by, see, to me then it was, wow, these are important people. I get to hang around with important people. Little did I know that they were struggling. They had, they had risen to positions in, in power and prestige according to the community, but they also had, as they had, um, they didn't have the best morals and they, they were certainly uh, heavy drinkers, but I, but I had felt like I had arrived in society. There was this little guy and um, it just went down. It went south from there and started to hang with them. And, and then I got invited with them to go a group of them. And look at it, it was a small group who, were when the vast majority of them, uh, the lawyers and the judges, and all really solid citizens, all solid family people, and that. But the, the group I was got fall, fell in with, uh, they were not. They were broken, and uh, we ended up got invited to a fishing trip, four days up to uh, northern Ontario, and uh, it was great fishing and camaraderie, but a lot of drinking. But um, anyway, what I didn't know, and I should have known is that one of the guys was, was invited. He was introduced me as Alec. Uh, 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 he was a prospector. Oh, really? That's an interesting thing. He, yeah, he prospects for minerals up in northern Canada and in northern Ontario. I never give much thought of it, Morgan. But it turns out he had a, he had a criminal record. He was an old safe cracker. Now, that was, you know, years, that was decades before, but still he had this criminal record. When we got back, the reporter did this big spread on the back page of the the paper, the newspaper showing us catching fish and here's this whole line of us and here's this guy well it just so happens that that same weekend there was a, a, a chief of police convention in our city and the chief and the, you know, and the chief of police in windsor put this newspaper in front of the inspector from the opp and said or the commissioner and said my guy they put arrows and had arrows drawn to me and another police officer was with me and said my guys don't hang around with criminals so embarrassed of me, he said, these guys got to go and they were going to transfer me. But I thought, I thought, wait a minute, I, I didn't do nothing wrong. Well, you know, I, I did. I should know who I'm with and more about it. But, but I was really angry. And I had, we went down to Toronto and I got an interview and I'm out, I watched how they treated the staff sergeant who took, or the inspector that took us. And I thought they were treating this guy like dirt. And I thought, I'm not going to stay on this department if you're going to treat me like that after 20 years in the service. And I, I was just angry, hurt and angry. And I just end up saying, I'm going to resign. And I did. He tried to talk me out of it on the way back. He says, Tom, you're just going to transfer you somewhere until this blows over. And, and then the ironic thing is that same superintendent, he, he got, he was, 
caught the following year with hanging out with a mobster in New, in New York State. Of course, <laughs> he's the guy. Here's the guy that was, you know, how it goes right. That poetic justice, but you know what the reality right. was. I made a bad decision, and I made a lot of bad decisions. Then. So Morgan, I quit, and that's when I started the litigation investigation because I knew all these lawyers. I used to do a little moonlighting at night. On, on just on civil litigation, it wasn't any criminal investigation. I could take statements, depositions to support uh, an accident claim or something like that. So everybody sort of had a foot and hold, and, and it took off. And I and did all right at that with that. But it also was keeping me away from home and, and getting and, and keeping me in in the wrong crowd. Tom, I want to pause you there because here's what I notice that universally in so many men's stories is they start getting parts of their soul recovered. They're maturing on the level of being entrusted with more and more kingdom. But now the unfinished, the uninitiated part of him, which was a minor theme, is really vulnerable, is accessible to evil, and in time becomes the major theme. And actually the part of the soul of the man that takes out the good man, the wholehearted man. So I'm curious for you when we think about kind of the parts of the soul and as you're seemingly healing, seemingly maturing, but still having these unfinished parts in you, um, what do you make of that sort of kind of interpretation? What was it like in your story? It is horribly crazy things, stupid things, and um, ended up hurting my wife and my camp family. Um, and, but it was, or my marriage was struggling anyway, because just Pat could sense, I, I wasn't, I was I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't be intimate or emotionally intimate. I was, I hold her off, hold her to distance. So she was, she was ready to, to pack it in. Uh, it just, but she felt she couldn't with the kids. We'd have to wait. A little while until she could, you know, get the kids out and get in school. Then she all get. They were just starting into school, getting more settled. And then she could she could quit or get a job, and then she would probably end the marriage. Tom, it just breaks my heart, and yet again, it's just so universal how this plays out in the stories of most men. So often we find ourselves, and this is such a good indicator of where is it that we are overreacting or underreacting to what is needed or what's happening around us. An, an overreaction or an underreaction is often a clue to recover the treasure of some traumatized part in us that needs healing and restoration. And so often when we're living from that place, it's a fight, flight, or freeze kind of reaction. The boy is threatened. He feels unsafe. He feels unvalidated. He feels like he can't be successful and his question goes unanswered. So fight, flight, freeze. Where were you at? And what'd you do? The most painful thing I did to, I felt to other people. And, um, and I, that, and I would struggle with the shame and guilt of that for three decades. Finally, I got, think the God, Lord got to me and said, Tom, it's still about you. I've forgiven you. It's still, you're still making it about you. Oh, Tom, it's painful and it's beautiful. I think what I'm struck by as you're sharing is we know our father is always at work. As the scripture says, that our story begins with God, that 
our work is to respond, is to look for him moving, is to watch his rescue that only looking back over the decades we can see is very orchestrated. His movement towards us with his affection, with his provision, with his intention to recover the parts and places within us that lack initiation. And so here you are struggling immensely. Where was the father showing up for you? I get out to the mountains and I'm I just come across this little ad, turn your heart towards home, focus on the family, Banff Gospel Church, Cougar Street, Sunday, and no intentions. We're gonna, and here's, here's, here's God. Eh? I thought, of, and I look back now, I was running away from life. I was running from away from people, and I was running away from God. So I'm on the back of my mind, I knew there was a God. So I thought, okay, Sunday nights, tied it off. I go downtown, there's a place called the Magpie and Stump. It was just a little kind of bistro bar. They'd have a musician in there and usually a bluegrass person. Go in and sit down and have a beer and just listen to music. Eh? That's how I spent my Sunday nights. I'm walking there. Before I get there, Cougar Street. It's on my way. It's only a few blocks from the Magpie and Stump. And I find myself turning down Cougar Street walking up to the church door. It's five to seven, but no way. I couldn't stop, I couldn't stop myself. I entered the door, pastor's there, all smiles. Hey, how you doing brother, shake your hand. Welcome, welcome, okay. And I make my way to the inside the door and plop myself down on the very first seat as close to the door as I can, just in case I got to get out of this crazy place. <laughs> and like, it. so I said, okay, I'll check it out, I'll stay. And I was shaking. I was like in the trance almost. And I was shaking. And what happened is they, they, they sang a couple songs. They had a little couple songs. And I go, okay. And then next thing you know, this black and white film thing came on. And it was this thing about turning your heart towards home. And Morgan, yeah. it was maybe a half hour. Just before it ended, I felt myself coming unglued. Mm. My gosh. Mm. My gosh. What have I done? What have I done? Then it ends, and I'm trying to compose myself, and I'm, I'm going to head to the door as fast as I can, but the pastor's already standing at the back door. He says, hey, come on next door. We're going to, in the, in the community hall, we're going to have hot chocolate and cookies. I'm going to think to myself, no, I need something much stronger right now. Right, that's not going to cut it. No, it's not. And I said, but I told, didn't lie. I said, you know, I thank you for inviting me. I said, but every Sunday night about this time, I call my kids, and I got to I got to go. I got to go call them. I got to make the call. I don't want to let them down. So, okay, well, maybe next Sunday, but I remember just crying all the way home, all the way back and spinning and spinning and spinning. And of course, I, in the mornings, I would get up and go and walk in the woods for, I had all day long because I didn't work, only worked afternoons. And I'd explore the mountains and I sometimes I'd take a little fly rod and catch a few a little trout. And, but it was my way of surviving, I guess, in the wilderness, getting into the woods and, and, uh, and with God. I didn't know it, but God is saying, You'll meet me here. Hmm. And later on, I would meet him in powerful ways. But it, I stayed. I went back for the entire series. And by the when I, the last one, right, I just walked out. I said, my buddy, I'm going home. What? I said, I'm going home. It's almost Christmas. I'm going home. And I just took off. And that's where, where I would come to the end of myself. So I go home. And then everything was going pretty good. And I thought, I was telling him how I had this opportunity at West and that we could, I thought, maybe we can all get together again. I'm a changed man. I'm a new man. But I had this, you know, I'm a fantasy and I got this, uh, 
I got this great job and we're going to give me this property in the house and, you know, you'll see it and, you know, you'll, you'll love it. And, and I was actually entertaining that this could happen work, but then end up going downtown. This guy came in named Bob. He was a psychologist. And I started telling him, I says, you know, I've been divorced for a while, but it looks like there's a possibility I could go back home and make my marriage work. And he just said, no, you're wasting your time. You're, that's a crazy thought. It'll never work. It'll never work. What I didn't know, Morgan, is he just gone through a bitter divorce himself. Mm, mm. It'll never work. Oh. You see, what do I know? This guy's a psychologist, eh? Right. I was devastated. Like it took the wind right out of me. And I said, I said, give me a drink. Or he said, I'll buy a drink. I said, okay. And I had a drink. And then, of course, I had another drink and another drink. And I probably had about four glasses of wine before I left there. And of course, I was now late and I got home. And it was, and I was feeling, I was feeling the alcohol. And I came in and I was, I was probably more impaired than I thought it was because I didn't probably have anything to eat and I wasn't used to drinking a lot. So anyway, Pat was looking pretty solemn and I said, I don't, I don't know what to do. She says, well, you're going to have to leave. I don't know where to go. I don't know. I, I, I need, I guess I need help. And she says, you need help. And she, uh, I said, do you have any ideas? She says, well, I heard of this place, this recovery center. You can go talk to somebody there. Yeah. I couldn't see the director that, but so the next day I went, to the school to meet him and Morgan, I went in and here's this little heavy set kind of looks like Mussolini, you know, the old Italian dictator is like stocky football, <laughs> ex football player priest. Eh? And he was a pretty foul mouth and he was, he was banging on the table when he did his meetings, but he just looked at me and he said, what, so what's, what are you for us? Well, he says, he goes, just listen for a minute. He says, you're bankrupt. So, well, no, I, I got a little cash in the bank. He says, you're bankrupt. I wasn't, it wasn't hitting me. And he says, yeah. what do you mean? He says, you don't have anybody. Mm. You, had a, you had a family. You had nobody. You're bankrupt. I can help if you want to come in. Took slug off his cigar, you know. Mm. Just go, go get your clothes. Come on in. I goes, I, I, I can't. Everything I have is out west. He says, well, whatever. It's up to you. It's your call. See you later. Next. You know, <laughs> I left there. I goes, oh, my God. I actually went back out, flew back out west. But I wasn't there a week. I wasn't there three weeks. And I thought, I got to go. And that's when I packed up my little Lada, a little $35 Lada with a hole in the floor. And I, I drove that all the way back to Ontario. Checked myself in on Valentine's. I checked myself in to mm. go. Tom, man after man after man, I hear the theme in a man's story of when has a man reached his bottom? It can get bad. But as long as it's not a bottom, it'll get worse. And yet looking back over decades, we see for every man, he comes to a point where he hits that lowest point, that bottom, where he finds himself deeply in need. I love when Jesus is with his apprentices, his climbing companions, Peterson says in the translation. He's with the many. And then he calls out to the few. He says, come with me. And those that were apprenticed to him climbed the mountain, drew away from the crowds. And he'd been with crowds performing miracles and dealing with Pharisees and the high drama intensity and supernatural. And here he is with his closest few. And he turns in the very first teaching, he says, the first thing he offers is, you are blessed when you are at the end of your rope. With less of you, there is more of God and his rule. 
And Tom, I'm just fascinated by that verse, that why would Jesus choose that teaching of everything he could say to his apprentices at that moment after witnessing what they witnessed? What kind of shape were they in? What is it that they needed? And what power in the counsel of God himself to say, you are blessed when you're at the end of your rope. With less of you, there is more of God and his rule. So it sounds like you found yourself at the end of your rope. I have finally surrendered and said, I can't do it. And that's really the first step in any any recovery program or even any 12-step program is admitting you're powerless and your life would become unmanageable. And it was definitely unmanageable. Pat said, I only want you to do one thing. I just want you to read a verse in scripture in the New Testament every night before you go to bed. And I would. I began to read the scriptures every night. And God began to do a work in me. So what it did is it broke it broke my self-will. It convicted me of my self-will. It convicted me of my selfishness. And it convicted me of my self-pity. And, and I finally got nailed on. I was blaming my mother when I first went in. Finally, the guys called me out and said, we're tired of hearing about your mother. What about you? Look at all the crap you pulled. And they just called me out on it. Eh? Mm. And so I began to really come to terms with my shadow self. And I prayed one prayer, Margaret. My prayer was this. Every night I'd say, God, make me and shape me into the man you want me to be. You got to be careful what you pray for. Right. You shape something. Mm. While in the program, there was about four weeks or five weeks in this program, I came to this conclusion. Oh, my gosh. I've been living my life backwards for the first 40 years of my life. Oh, my gosh. Most of it's wrong. I have to deconstruct my life. Mm. Deconstruct it. I have to tear down that old man. But I came to that rationalization. Oh, my gosh. I've been wrong all these years. And that's a pretty rude awakening. Yes. You're either going to try to go back in and continue doing what you're doing. You're going to have to let go of all of that. And you're going to have to, you're going to, have to continue to die to the false self. Oh, Tom, this is the heartbeat of Become Good Soil. It's the heartbeat of masculine initiation. Where we want to build, we must tear down. Where we want to be first, we must become last. Where we want to make a name for ourselves, we have to humble ourselves and let God recover the name that he meant when he meant us. When we want to be the center of our story, it's where we have to pause and say, God, you have permission to deconstruct my life in order that I can find you and I can see you at the center of all things and find who I am in you. And that's where things really took off when I began to really see that. And then, of course, running the children's program and getting the board and all this, I was there for working that thing for 10 years. And then finally, I had a meeting with him. He says, what are you doing? I says, what are you doing? He says, I, he says that's not spiritual. That's crazy. You know, I'm doing all these things. Eh? No, no, you, no, no. What do you get willing to go? I says, whatever you say. So how about the board of directors? That's the most prized position here, right? He goes, you're willing to give it up? He says, if you quit, if you step down, maybe I'll get rid of some of the dead wood on there. I goes, okay, I'll quit. I stepped down off the board, stepped off the plane. I stepped down. He says, all I was left was the kids program. And I've been doing it for nine years now, every Tuesday night. He says, I want you to stay on another year with the kids program. Meantime, we'll train a couple other people. And you do it, I goes, 
Okay. Tom, I want to pause there. A decade, 10 years every Tuesday night in children's ministry. I just love the slow and steady. I love that God is not in a hurry, that the Father is doing the steady work in you. Lesson number three is to get to lesson number four. Again and again, he will slow us down. He'll say, do less, go slower, love more. Not only loving others, but loving ourselves. And in your story, there is this beautiful story about not just you, Tommy Caldwell, but another Tommy that you met that was God's particularly timed intervention to restore and rescue a small part of you. Can you take us into that story? One night, Tommy comes in, little guy. He goes, hi, what's your name? He goes, F you. Mm. Excuse me, he's eight years old. Mm. F you. And he tries to kick me. I goes, whoa, whoa, Tiger. Hey, what's what's up? Okay. You know, you're welcome. Anyway, he actually sat down in a chair. And then we, I do a little short didactic. And I think that night was anger, you know? <laughs> You know, because kids, you can't keep them a long time, especially a little kid. So you do a short didactic, maybe five, 10 minutes. The parents are talking about anger. It's just your parents are talking. When you go home, you can talk. You'll know what they're talking about. And they can, you guys can have a conversation. That's That was the hope of it. The parents and the kids would be able to talk about what daddy's learning in the program. And um, so Tommy comes in a, a small group. I had about six little boys in there, eight-year-olds. And I, I said, okay, we're going to share about anger and just go around the circle. And everybody goes around and comes to Thomas. Tommy, you don't have to say a word. Uh, you just, if you're new here, you don't have to say nothing. And he just looks up and he says, my dad killed, shot my mother, killed her. And a little boy across and says, your dad's a murderer. Well, Tommy got out of his seat. He was going for his throat. And I had to grab him and pull him off. Eh? Whoa. Okay. And he was just, oh, he was, and I'm like, I'm holding him out like this. Good thing. I, you know? <laughs> and I said, okay. Then we would break off. And then we had a, a little gym there where you go play shoe baskets and stuff like that. And the girls would do other stuff. But I remember going in the gym and saying, come on in here. And I said, and I say, you want to shoot hoops? No. I said, okay. As you're, you're afraid I'll beat you. I'd say, you know, I just kind of taunt him a little bit. Yeah. And he, he, he wouldn't play, but, but I said, Judge, everyone, when he leaves, I said, Tommy, keep coming back. Hey, eh? oh, no, I hope to see you next week, Tommy. That's all I said. I really hope I see you next week. And he, you know, and he, and he said, yeah, whatever. And I says, Tommy, I want to tell you something. No matter what you do, no matter what you say, I'm going to love you. And I'm going to be here. Yeah. Whatever. And I left it with that. Well, he, Tommy kept coming back and eventually got him to shoot hoops. And then we were kind of, he was kind of warming up. Eh? And he was loosening up a little bit. And I remember we're heading for the door and I, I, I just put my hand on his shoulder and said, I'll see you next week, buddy. And he wheeled around me, Morgan. He just screamed, don't touch me. And I, oh, and I, I could see the pain in his morning. I dropped to my knees, Morgan. And I said, Tommy, tears in my eyes. Tommy, what's wrong? What's wrong? And he said, nothing. I said, okay, but you ever want to talk about it? I'm here for you. And he just paused for a minute. And he said, and he said my, my, Dad did bad things to me. Hmm. And then, you know, obviously he'd been abused. I said, I'm so sorry. So sorry. Almost like the scene in but with honey and I just right. I just said, Tommy, you want to hug? Don't have to. I'll never hurt you. You know. And he just threw himself on me and I hugged him. Or it was it was a defining moment. 
Mm. So what I'm going to do with my life? Mm. I can help these kids. Tom, I have to pause. It's so beautiful. You became the kind of man that could offer what you hadn't received. That insecure attachment that defined your boyhood through the love of God, through the steady initiation work over time, through healing, restoration, deliverance, breaking of agreements, building community, confession, recovering your true name. You became what you didn't have. And here you are offering intimacy, affection, love, and care, masculine strength to little Tommy out of older Tommy becoming what you didn't have. It's a picture of what's possible in the restoration of the hearts of men when we recover our path of masculine initiation, when we respond to God's invitation in our ordinary everyday life. It's beautiful. Where'd you go from there? Actually started setting up support groups at the church modeled after a 12 threat program of sort of, but we call it personal growth through Christ. First, we'd call it healing for damaged emotions, but nobody in the church, what church would come. <laughs> right. oh, no, we're not damaged emotions. So we change it to personal to growth through Christ. Even then, there was only a few handfuls, but all kinds of people, communities started coming in. We, I set up 44 chairs every night, and I, six people would show up, and I go, God set up 44. I, Come on, Lord. I mean, I, it was that clear. Like, you got to. Mm. Anyway, finally, it filled up, Morgan, and we had to move the chapel, and we got up to 100 people. And probably over the next 20 years, we had two or 3,000 people go through that program. What it did is create a community, and a lot of people became members of the church, and they were, but that remember the pastor and that's you guys, that's the real church. He says, we're doing church, but that's the real church. You guys get real there. Morgan, I had the ability to sign papers for up to $7 million on my, I had the authority to do that. I had planned a youth center in the County. We had built, we to build this little village self-sustaining with an old general store and a grist mill and sell bakeries and all this stuff. And the kids would come and I'd hook them up with grandparents to stay in these cottages and they go to school in the daytime. All those plans with already to purchase the property and everything. Poof, poof. I'm going, Lord, Lord. I mean, really good stuff, eh? On, you know, for the community. And I goes, Lord, what was that? The Lord takes his time, eh? But as I walk, he goes, Tom, Tommy. That's when I heard first Tommy, Tommy. Yeah. Tommy, I'm just trying to show you what I can do with your life. Mm. It's not over yet. Tom, as I step back to 15,000 feet, I see this narrative arc of you maturing through a path and process, recovering boyhood and secure attachment, recovering the cowboy and adventure stage of wandering in wilderness and nature and recovering what makes you come alive and where you find joy, recovering the warrior and learning how to offer your strength and courage and heroism for someone and something greater than yourself and becoming the kind of king that can be entrusted with the care of God's kingdom. And now I see you just moving, ascending into more and more kingdom promotions where God's moving you uh, from king to wise guide, king to sage, king to elder at the gate. So what was next for you? From there, I would jump two days later. The pastor of my church called me, Tom, we need help. We had a counseling center, but the director had to step down. Can you help us? I know you're hurting. It's been a hard time. So it's okay. I can help. And I took over just before Christmas. Right after Christmas, he says, Tom, can you, can you, would you be willing to stay on for a while and help us set it up? Just can't pay you much. 
I said, how much is much? He says, 12,000 a year. I goes, oh, uh, that isn't much, is it? Wow. <laughs> but, see, oh I, but, see, but see, God had arranged this settlement. Hmm. So I had a settlement. To, I was able to take in. And what I did, they said, would you help? Will you evaluate it and make some recommendations on it? And I said, I can make this into a full-fledged counseling center with psychologists, social workers, the whole nine yards, and support groups. And they said, go for it. So I got a little, I got a bit of a bump and an increase, but not a whole lot, you know, but after the, I, enough to, enough to feed myself. And we were able to set up a compassionate care fund and help people who come in who couldn't afford counseling. We did a couple thousand sessions a year for people who couldn't afford counseling. They pay, pay $5, pay $10, pay what you can. And the next thing you know, I was, I was offered a job. I was doing part-time men's ministry, the counseling office. And then, and then they decided that's another story of betrayal, but they ended up closing that counseling center when the new pastor took over. And because there was one in the city, it's redundant. We don't need it. It goes, Oh, Whoa, you're getting for this little bit of money. You're getting all these professionals who actually right. got paid by their clients or by insurance companies. And it wasn't really costing the church much, but closed it. There I am again, boom, another seemingly betrayal. But at the same time, the district wanted me to come on. I had a few more days and I started, they didn't know how to, what to do with me at the church. So, they said, well, I took over men's ministry. Tom, I love just watching God go back very particularly piece by piece by piece, bringing healing to every place of trauma. Is there any other particularly kind of defining moments as you look back and you see the intervention of God? My wife, Morgan, I would not have made it. I would not. That unconditional love. It took three years after going through the program, me knocking on the door or being, I'd go over, I went over almost every night. And then after supper, I'd say, she's okay, time for you to go. So I'd have to check out at eight o'clock, get my car. And I was living with a guy in a, in a house down in Windsor. You're saying this is when you guys were separated for those years. Yes. After I came back. your two marriages. Three years. And I worked my program. I worked my program. I went to church. I'd, and I, about every six months, I'd say, any chances of getting back? And she said, Tom, I swear I'm not in love with you. And I leave there and I cry and I drive back. I say, after three years, I just remember hitting my dash in the car. What, what do you want from me? Like, you know, why? I'm doing everything right. You know? And I think that's another defining moment in this story. Because right? I, I remember getting going in and I was like crying. And like, and I remember kneeling down at my bed, which I did every night. And I'm still reading the scripture every night. And I remember kneeling down and just crying out and said, okay, I surrender. Okay, if you never, I don't care. If you never give them back to me again, if I never have to get again, I don't care. I'm still going to keep loving them, no matter what you do. I'm just going to keep loving them. I'll just, you got to show me what to do from here. I just like, just slobby, you know, like, but but I'm going to love them. If I never get anything out of this other than what I got now, I'm going to love them. We're going to got in bed, open my scripture. And there was this, there was the story of the lost sheep that night. That night, the Lord Jesus heard Tommy crying in the wilderness. I hear you. Here's where the story gets confusing. I was over one night. She, Mommy turned around and looked at me and just gave me a little kiss. I go, what are you doing? We actually went and talked to, this is before all the stuff blew up at, you know, at, the, at the recovery home. He went to talk to the priest and he said, he had told me like after two years, Tom, it's not much chance it's going to happen. You might have to move on. Just prepare yourself. Well, now we're three years. Eh? 
But I remember she she started going to women's meetings and started understanding. And she started understanding herself and her own brokenness. I mean, it was working on herself. Yeah. But it was like this, and, and clear, clear, well, clear as day to me now, Mark. It was like when I came back, God had closed her heart down, not to hurt her, to protect her, yeah. to protect her. Mm-hmm. And had she opened her heart up any earlier than that, I was right. not ready yet. I even was, I still wasn't really ready after three years. Right. Makes sense. But, but I was, he felt God was willing to take a chance on me because he saw the direction I was going and I was determined and I was, persevering and I was pushing through and I wasn't being, I was sacrificing myself every day, giving myself to whoever God put in my life that day. That's, that's why I lived those whole three years. Every day I was like, what can I do? What can I do? Who can I serve? But so that, but that night was a change point. I think that that's when her heart began to open. Mm. And um, within a few months we got remarried mm. and um that's just the first time I ever married to somebody twice, especially in this predomination. But there's just so much more, so many other good treasures and gems. Uh, but of course, I ended up, I ended up, uh, ended up burning out at the church, nearly burning out, doing too much counseling. And I was, I, I, what did I know about practicing my faith? It was all of me. It was still about performance, still about performance, gospel sin management, all that. And then I and, and then I was burned out, but I saw I never I never had it gone to a conference like pastor's law. I said the superintendent, and then like I was being paid by him and the church. I said, Is there any, there's this world conference in Nashville, Tennessee, uh, in, in I think it was 2000, 2000 or 2001, because I think I met you in 2001. But anyway, I said, if I pay part of the way, will you guys help me go? And they go, Yeah, okay, you never you never have one. So they, they we split the thing three ways, and I here I shoot down a flight on Nashville, and it was all the all the all the big speakers, and they had these workshops. But every day they had a plenary session in the morning, one at noon, and one in the evening. One afternoon, right after lunch, walk in, these mega screens come up, and the lights go off. <laughs> Trailer gladiator. Well, you know what happened? Oh yeah. Who walked out in his plaid shirt and his jeans, long hair? <laughs> Uh-huh. Well, you walk on the wild man, John Eldridge. And everybody starts laughing. You know, he goes, John says, what's so funny? And then he jumps into, you know, the core, three core desires, every little boy. And he jumped into the whole thing and then mm. talked about boys repelling down the, out of the window. You shall not repel, you know. Right? But and he unpacked, you know, the glider. Who is this journal? And Morgan, something inside me went, whoa, whoa. And by the way, your heart is good. You got to get past Ezekiel. What? I never heard that in church. And I was emotional. And I remember going right down to the down in the bookstore down below. And I picked up a copy of Sacred Romance and the Journey of Desire. I don't know if Wilder Heart was out yet. I think it might have been. I don't think it was. I went back to the room and I called Pat and I was all emotional. I said, I don't know what's going on, but something's pretty crazy is going on. It was a uh, it was another pivotal point. I three months later I met you. I think it was, I don't know if it was October or the or the February, mm. out at Bona Vista, you know, maybe. 200 guys, 300 guys, or something like that. You were the first person I met. And I felt a connection. Mm-hmm. I don't know about it, but I, I felt a connection. You made me feel so welcome. But that's when I began to really meet with God. And this is where, this is it. I, I'm having this conversation. What do you like about that? He goes, oh, I love the pinion pines. I love the ruggedness of Colorado. I love the snow. I just, I just love this. I just, it's just, oh. No, no. What'd you like about that? 
God. Whoa, what's going Whoa, hold it, hold it. God, what did you like about it? Oh, I, I just really love going after his heart. He says, yeah, that's what I made you for, Tommy. Tommy, that's what I made you for. Not the end of the story. Whoa. I, you mean I actually just had a conversation with God? Yeah. Like, am I losing it? You know, I know, you know, the first time I, I, I go another hundred feet or so, and I'm, and all of a sudden I say, Tommy, I need to talk to you. And first thing goes through your head, like, what? What did, what do I do wrong? What did I do wrong? Eh? Right. Like, about what? My sin? About my what? About, okay, about what? He says, Tommy, stop it. Okay, God, stop what? Stop beating yourself up. Hmm. I love you, Tommy. Hmm. Always have. Stop it. More and I began to fall. I mean, I'm everything's coming out, right? I run down. I gotta run in the I gotta, I gotta run in the dining hall and wash my face. I burst through the doors, I almost knocked John right off his feet. He's getting ready to go to tea. Boom! Hey, whoa, 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 whoa. You okay? He goes, no, I'm not okay. He goes, oh. what, 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 what's the matter? Goes, and I told me, he goes, oh, and he just hugged me. He says, beautiful, beautiful. Oh. Hmm. I spent a period, two decades, going to see my parents' grave. And I can honestly say that I, through this whole understanding their pain, that's why I don't want to put them, blame them for anything. Right, of course. Just a reality of what happened. Their story before that, their parents' story, like they were pioneers going into a new land. I mean, literally cutting down trees. They were wounded. They were wounded by that and they were wounded by the war. And it, I was wounded because of their woundedness, not because they were bad people. Right. But I was able to move from acceptance of what happened to forgiveness, asking forgiveness, and then to reconciliation. Whereas my, the last time, this just this when I went out and said, Ma, I wish you were here. Dad, I wish you were here. I know what to do with Paul for all of us. I, I, I'm totally free. No more anger, no more pain, no more fear. And I can honestly say that God was on a rescue mission for me. We had a plan. You would rescue me and you would use it to rescue others. Isaiah 43, 18, I've come to heal the brokenhearted and to set the captives free. Don't give up. Don't give up. Tom, we've walked through a lot of years together, a lot of chapters, and I know we have more to come in fighting for the hearts of other men. I want to thank you for being willing to risk putting out eight decades of masculine initiation of Eden, Eden lost and Eden recovered through your story in order that the hearts of men can be recovered all around the earth. And friends, as this story comes to a close, I wanna invite you to pause and take our 60 seconds at the close of this podcast to listen to the heart of God. What is it today from Tom's story? What parts of his story are identifying with parts of your story? And through the narrative arc of his masculine initiation, what is it that the Holy Spirit is wanting to shine light upon? What is the Father wanting to do for you? How is God wanting to meet you? And what's next for you in your masculine initiation? You are blessed when you are at the end of your rope because there, there is less of you 
and more of God and his rule. Brothers, I bless you with more of the life of God to come home to more parts of you. I bless you with increasing capacity that you would want to want to love God with your whole heart, that you would want to invite him in to the places unfinished, the places not yet, to meet him at the end of your rope and say, come, Father, come, Spirit, come, Jesus. I give you permission. I give you access. I give you my attention. Tell me what you want to say. And tell me what your provision is in this place in my story. Friends, thanks for joining us. Take 60 seconds and be with God here in this place.